welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by our new sponsor for the Oil & Gas Onshore podcast. A big shout out to Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of the oil and gas industry. Hey everyone, look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. Welcome to this week's episode. We're here in person with Robert Kasky, U.S. Sales Manager at TWMA. We're here, like I said, we're in person. It's nice to get out. We're here at the Canon. For those of you who don't know, it's it's a beautiful spot here in, in Houston for sh- like a shared workspace. But man, it feels good to get out and do some socializing. Robert, how are you doing today, man? How was your long weekend? I'm doing great, man. I'm just glad to be out. Yeah. Working from home is nice, but there's those days where you're like, begging for something to do to get out. Yeah. Well, if you're like me, you like to socialize a little bit, which I know you do. You're you're a people's person, most definitely. And so being cooped up at the house is is certainly presented some challenges. But, you know, I got to say it feels good. And and I I feel 10 times better today than I did last Friday for the listeners out there. We were supposed to record the Friday before Memorial Weekend. We had a sales meeting and and I'm going to blame my boss and a gentleman by the name of Chris Campbell for, you know, just we had a really intense sales meeting. I just couldn't pull through the next day. So nonetheless, I I owe, you know, Robert, certainly something special here. And hopefully we can make this a good conversation. I can uh, I can vouch for you on that with those two guys. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those deals, but nothing to do with coronavirus. I just maybe Corona and some things, you know, some a little bit else. But nonetheless, we're here. I'm happy to get on behind the microphone with you. And before we get going, I just want to highlight some neat technology provided by our new sponsor, which is Technip FMC. Offered in multiple sizes and configurations, their well-flexible pipe offers quicker and easier rig up, significantly absorbs vibration, and reduces head loss and turbulence. This exclusive design specifically from manifold to tree and enhance frack project economics no matter your flow rate needs. Click the link in the show notes to find out more. And if you haven't already, please leave a review, good or bad, to help support the show. I would really appreciate it. I know I'm over 500 downloads an episode and with only 78 reviews. So if you could leave one, that would certainly be much appreciated. And now that the quarantine's over, you know, and things are starting to get lifted, hit me up on LinkedIn and let's grab a coffee. I always enjoy engaging with the audience. And, you know, the ones who are supporting the show. And if you're not into coffee, that's cool, too. I'm extremely grateful that you're even listening. So, yeah, Robert, one thing I would like to ask people, especially coming out of this, you know, quarantine, you know, craziness that we've experienced is, you know, aside from the negative part, was there any silver lining going through? I mean, I've talked to a lot of people and it's some people, you know, self-reflect. They finally were able to get into whether it's hobbies or interests that otherwise, you know, life was too busy to where they couldn't. So was there any silver lining, say, over the last two months that you really recognized? I tell you, I coach like baseball with my son and, and that's pretty intense. My daughter plays select soccer. So she practices three or four times a week and games on the weekend and tournaments and travel and stuff. And, uh, 
having us all kind of cooped up in the house actually allowed for us to spend a lot more time together as a family. Mm-hmm. And we typically don't have maybe but one night a week where we're all in the house at the same time. Yeah, Wife's going one way, I'm going the other way. We get home at nine, heat something up in the oven and do it all over the next day. Yeah. So if there's one silver lining, I would say actually being around one another more mm-hmm. in a setting where we're all together. Yeah. Did you learn anything about family members that you didn't know beforehand? I learned <laughs> that my daughter has become a young lady and she's, yeah. she's getting quite the attitude uh, <laughs> with <Yeah>. me. <laughs> Mine's four and I said the same thing. So, and, and from my understanding, it only gets, depending on how you look at it, better, worse, but, but it continues to evolve <laughs> in certain ways that us as males have a hard time identifying with. But you know, I'm fortunate, you know, I have, you know, one son and one daughter. So it's, it's an even match. <laughs> I have the same. I have, I have a, a nine-year-old son or soon to be nine and a 12-year-old daughter. There you go, man. And so Pre-teens. I'm still his hero. She's my daughter. I used to be her hero. Yeah. <laughs> now you're a zero or what? Yeah. It feels like it some days. <laughs> well, you mentioned baseball and, you know, I have a love for baseball. I grew up, shoot, I think we call it mosquitoes in Canada. And then it's like basically T-ball. I started playing T-ball and then played all through until I was like 17, played, you know, different regionals, different club teams. And so I have a lot of respect for coaches, the amount, you know, growing up, they're just coaches are coaches. They're there and they, they just do their job. But now as I grow older, I realize like most of the coaches that were coaching me, were not getting paid much if at all. And so it's volunteered. How'd you get into coaching baseball? Like, where does that come from and, and why do you do it? Oh, that's a good question. I grew up playing baseball myself, mm-hmm. like you, and played through high school and then got a baseball scholarship, went to college and played for a little while. And where at? Texas Wesleyan University, which was at the time I was growing up, was an NAIA. Okay. It was your schools like St. Saint Edwards, St. Mary's, Texas Lutheran, okay. Concordia, all these schools, East Texas Baptist. So I took a scholarship with them and, and went up to Fort Worth and played baseball for a couple of years. Yeah. Realized throwing 88 from the right side wasn't going to cut it. And I got tired of being broke. Uh, yeah. <laughs> couldn't <laughs> fix my electric windows and air conditioning was out. <laughs> I told my parents I needed to get a job. Yeah. So I, I walked away from it, but it was fun. Yeah. And so were you, were you involved with baseball at all until you had kids or how did, how did no, you No, I, I didn't. I wanted to coach my son if given the opportunity to spend some time with him. So I, I jumped in at T-Ball. Nice. And, you know, they're begging for sponsors up there with the Little League and so forth. They're begging for sponsorship with coaches as far as coming up and working with the kids because it's for, you know, they don't make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And so they were asking, they send out an email. And so I jumped into it knowing baseball and knowing what I was talking about for the most part. Right. Opted to do that, and I kind of just stuck with it. He enjoyed it, and I, I told my wife, as long as he enjoyed it as much as I did growing up, or you, you know, sure, that I would stick with it. Nice. Good for you, man. So over the years, and even maybe since you've played, is there much of a difference with parents now versus back in the day, and then how much pressure they put on their kids? Because I feel like that's a pretty interesting topic. And so someone like yourself who grew up playing, played at a pretty competitive level, and now coaches – what does that look like nowadays? That's a, that could be a trick question there. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's a touchy subject. Right, it is. No, I, you know, look, I'm pretty, pretty open about things. I think that we got dropped off at the ballpark back in the day and our parents didn't interfere for the most part with coaches and mm-hmm. you just, you did what the coaches said, whether it was a volunteer coach or, or a high school coach or, or a select coach or, and 
Today, you know, it's a little different. You have to be more of a politician when you're baseball coaching and because everybody feels like their kid's number one, and, and as they should, right? It's their child. But yeah. uh, the reality is some kids are better than others, and those kids get to play other positions, and you got to fill the whole field. So it's a balance, and you try to move kids around and not sacrifice losing, but at the same time realizing it's okay to drop some games when they're growing up and learning the game uh, mm-hmm. to ensure that you give everybody some ample time to play in certain positions. But at the end of the day, the athlete is going to show through. You're going to know what kids are going to be playing primary positions as they start to get older and older. Right. We took the select route. I mean, we played the little league and, and had a great time and, and met a lot of great people. And I competed against some other coaches and that were all passionate about teaching their kids the game of baseball. And and then we kind of all, after a couple of years of playing against one another, formed our own team and went outside of the little league where we started charging you know, a monthly fee to buy our uniforms, enter tournaments and so forth. We were actually in our first year Okay, this year uh, with a group of eight, nine-year-olds and COVID hit. So we, uh, to be continued, we got about four games in. No and, kidding. Uh, Damn. Yeah. That's tough. Well, hopefully like everything, we can come out of this a little stronger. How important is losing for kids? It's real important. It's one of the most important aspects of being strong in sports. I mean, understanding what it's like to lose and how how hard you work to not lose. It's important for them to lose early. Right. I mean, when you go your whole life winning everything, it's hard to deal with real life and losing, especially like in sales, like like we are. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I take several L's before I get a W, I can tell you that. And it's that much more rewarding when you do. Right. You know, so, I mean, it's important that they understand what it's like. We encourage commitment out of the kids playing ball, and, and we tell them that that team that's across the diamond from you wants it just as much as you do. And now, I mean, we didn't do much losing, but we're about to. We're about to get into that. So they're going to have to understand a little bit. And we preach it all the time to them about how good the level of competition is about to be. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they didn't get to see that a lot with the season getting cut short, but they will soon enough in fall ball. Yeah. What are your thoughts on participation trophies? Mm, man, you're rolling them out there to me. I'm just, these <laughs> questions are coming to mind. <laughs> I do not like them I at agree. all. I, I agree. Tell yeah. me why. <laughs> well, I think when you play sports and you work hard at playing sports, and as these kids get older, all kids get older, and they, the level of competition gets greater, and it goes back to kind of what you mentioned about knowing how to lose and understanding the commitment you got to put forward to win, not only in sports but in life. I think that you appreciate things a lot more when you have to work for them. And, you know, the participation trophy really – when they get so used to getting something and then they don't, they don't know how to deal with it. Right. Yeah. And when everybody gets a trophy or, you know, it would be like everybody in high school getting all district honors or something. And right. I just, I don't really agree with it. I don't want to go down that, uh, I got a lot of other things I could say about it, but I, uh, it's, yeah, it's interesting conversation because again, as a parent now of kids that are obviously a lot younger is I'm, I'm really trying to, you know, and, and they're fortunate. They grow up in a good home and, and they don't face much adversity. So I almost have to manufacture adversity to make sure that, you know, it's, you know, when little Johnny whoops my kid's ass and whether it's baseball, basketball, football, that, you know, he doesn't come crying and saying, oh, you know, I thought I was the best. Well, little Johnny probably put in some work when you didn't. And so it's, you know, and, and I know growing up, you know, I got beat down and 
And there was no such thing. You know, my football coach would grab me by the face mask and want to tear my head off if I did something wrong. It wasn't like, oh, good job, Justin. You made better luck next time. It's like, well, you didn't practice hard this week. So that's what you get. I think there's a balance. And not that I've ever coached professionally. It's not my career. You know, I got a lot of buddies that are career coaches and they do a great job. But I try to balance. I'm firm and I talk to the parents in the beginning of the season and explain to them my expectations. And and it's not so much to win every game and beat the crap out of people. It's it's more for them to understand what it takes to be a good baseball player, mm-hmm. whether that be through discipline or fundamentals. And I said, if I can lay the platform, the groundwork for them now, and they continue with it, they're going to be prepared when they get into a 6A environment or 5A environment here in, in Houston, Katy area where we live. And they understand what it's all about. Right. I donate my time just like any other coach that does it at this level, I don't get paid for it. I do it because I know my son loves it and I enjoy the game of baseball. Yeah, I think that's the right attitude. And and certainly it's like you said, it, it is a touchy subject, but you know, I'll say this. And I mean, I, I feel like, you know, and I think every adult says this, but like, you know, I say, I feel old saying this, but I think kids nowadays are soft or at least a lot of them are. And, you know, and, and I don't know if it's a function of the old participation awards and everyone wins and you know, everyone gets to play equal minutes. I think it's, you know, I, I certainly have my thoughts on it, but my wife would be cringing if she was sitting here right now yeah. because she knows how I feel about it. <laughs> yeah. and, to, to, and I'm, and I, I'm doing treading. the best I can right now not to get myself in. The, <laughs> you're <laughs> treading nicely. I can tell. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> the thing with sports uh, you try to surround yourself with good parents and they understand that kids need to be pushed and not necessarily like to give an example personally but like how does that work with say let's say you have a jam up kid who's a rock star and who's got potential but his parents influence him in being something else like is that hard to navigate and like does it come to a point where like even if someone's got the skill set but the parents are a pain Like, how do you manage that? Or not necessarily you, but like as coaches nowadays, do you, how do you manage that? Well, I've had those situations occur with a couple of different situations. And I've, I've tried to let that individual get through that, that evening or that practice or whatever. And then, and and then contact them directly myself. Yeah. I feel like the best way to, to head those things off or to understand both sides or to call them and have a conversation. Right. And I've had to do that. And it's an uncomfortable situation, but yeah. I feel like the the worst thing is to ignore it and think it's going to go away because it's not. For sure. And, you you know, I just, you know, I speak to them man to man and, and explain to them that this is, you know, how we're set up. And this is what I, you know, I think your son can be at this game, but you got to back off. Yeah. You got to back off because it's hard enough on us coaches doing it. And it's not that you don't know baseball. It's that we're coaching yeah. The game. Right. During the game. Right. Most of them understand. I mean, both both situations I've had, they've understood. So Yeah. I can imagine that must be super challenging. <laughs> it can be frustrating at times, but yeah, we just drink a beer after the game and that's it. Yeah, calm the nerves a little bit and <laughs> yeah. move on, right? Well, what was life like for Robert Caskey as a kid? Where'd you grow up, man? I spent the uh, first ten years of my life on the coast in Rockport. It's kind of a small little town right by Corpus. Yeah. I had divorced parents, so at an early age, I think they split when I was three. And my dad lived in Quero, and my mom opted to move to Rockport. So, yeah, so I spent the first 10 years there hanging out on the beach and nice fishing. And yeah, yeah. Is that where the love of fishing came from? Just growing up around it all the time? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah, just running the, uh, the beach, running the whole town, really. You talk yeah. about parents today. 
my wife won't let our kids go down the uh, street without somebody watching them. And, and I used to run the whole dang town on a bike. Hey, well, that could be a whole nother topic of discussion. Times there. have changed though. So I understand where she's coming from. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I say too. Yeah. Kind of interesting yet a unique path of your oil field journey, you know, just based off of LinkedIn, you were at UPS back in 99. Then all of a sudden you became a senior sales account executive at NOV and then followed up by becoming a drilling engineer. How the hell did all that happen? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, look, I, I, I graduated when I transferred from Texas Wesleyan. I went to, I decided to go back closer to home, went to, I'm aging myself now, but went to Southwest Texas and which is now Texas State. And I needed a job and a buddy of mine uh, was working at UPS and he offered to get me a, he said, you know, I'll get you this job. It's tough. A lot of dirty work, but it's Monday through Friday. You'll have your weekends off, you know? So I was like, hey. So I jumped on with UPS. Within eight months, I was the supervisor of the local sort there. We're running that thing at night, and uh, they started paying for my school. And, you know, I had a plan to get a business degree and get into some type of sales. I was looking at Austin, Texas, you know, looking at pharmaceutical sales or something at that time. Yeah. That's when I still had all my hair, you know? (laughs) And I got in tight with UPS guys, and, you know, I was offered a full-time position when I graduated college. And I said, oh, I don't really know if I want to do that and manage at UPS. And the guy said, I'll start you out at 65000 a year. And I said, okay, where do I go? That's pretty <laughs> solid. From back in, in the day. 2002, I thought I was rich. Yeah, no shit. Yeah, so I took the job, went up there and worked about six years. And I realized that it was killing yourself 14, 15 hours a day. And then during Christmas, 18, 19, 20 hours a day. Mm was every holiday and all that and dealing with a union I think kind of just got to me a little bit you know just yeah for those who've never worked union like how would you describe it like union versus non-union so as all management at UPS was non-union right they represented the company and teamsters at UPS represented the drivers or the all hourly workers and it's a tough thing to deal with when you're trying to achieve greatness and I was all about working my butt off to have the number one center and whatever, and, you know, ambitious and young. And at times, you know, if I handled a package or something, they would write me up and they would be paid 20 something, whatever their hourly wage was for me handling a package instead of me putting them on the clock. And uh, it was a hard thing for me coming up in a small town to understand that, that mindset. Yeah. And, you know, you would train good, good guys. You'd train them up and train them how to be a driver. And they would, you know, they would go out and kick butt for a while. And then, you know, then they would kind of slow down a little bit and you're like, what's going on? And, you know, they'd get heat from the older drivers about, you know, their stops per on road hour and stuff like that, you know? Man. So it's, it's not a terrible thing. I mean, but it, I just got, I got to the point where I, I didn't want to do it anymore. Sure. Trying to make a difference was too hard. Right. Uh, no, I can, up I there can see fighting a, between a union and, and then a private, I mean, a publicly traded company and <laughs> yeah. trying to make numbers and everything else. And yeah. Huh. So how soon after that did you end up getting on with NOV or how did you get on with NOV? So my father-in-law is in oil and gas insurance and he had been in the oil, oil and gas industry for Baker Oil Tools or Elder Oil Tools and then become Baker Oil Tools. And he mentioned coming back to Quero and getting on with a buddy of his who had a small service company. So I thought about it and a buddy of mine had a ranch house. He said, hey man, come, you can stay in the ranch house if you move back. You know, he's he wasn't utilizing it. He was in Colorado as a firefighter. Or whatever. And, uh, yeah. So I gave it some thought and I, I decided, hell with it. My dad was in oil and gas. My grandfather was in oil and gas. And uh, <laughs> so I said, what the hell, I'll, I'll try this oil and gas deal. So yeah. moved back and took a job with this small service company for a year. 
and out running the fields in deep South Texas, Zapata area and all that down there and staying on a buddy's couch in Alice, Texas. My, uh, <laughs> one of my good buddies from high school was, co- he was coaching football down there in Alice. Oh, that yeah. was his first job out of school. Okay. And so I was staying on his couch a lot. Nice. We'd go play poker every night somewhere. And, and I ended up doing that for a year and I met a bunch of people from NOV and they offered me a position there. Nice. And that was, you were still in the field or did they bring you into the office? No, so no, they didn't. So I I came up for six weeks. I built motors in the shop. Okay. Put them together and they hired me as a salesman, but they wanted to make sure I understood what I was talking about. For sure. So Alice, Texas in the summertime, uh, putting motors together. No kidding. Yeah. Did you like it? I did. I liked the idea of, I mean, obviously manual labor, you know, it's tough and it's hot, no air conditioning and and, uh, that kicks your butt, you know, it takes it out of you, but I wasn't going to let them see that. So yeah. 12-hour days doing that. But I knew what I was talking about with the tools. Yeah. You know. How important is that, do you think, for salesmen to have, it doesn't necessarily have to be 10 years in the field, but at least field knowledge to be able to have an understanding of when someone, when it's their customer asks them a question, they have actually hands-on dealt with it. I think it's, I think it's more important today, yeah. you know, when, when you're in these times. I mean, it's important in general. You got to know what you're selling, but it's even more so important when we're in situations like this, right? Yeah. When there's severe layoffs and and, and so forth and your customers are, there's less socializing with the customer and it's more like, I need to know what's going on with this tool or that tool. And that technical side comes out where where there's not a lot of breakfast runs and everything else. It's it's, it's less socializing, more business, right? Yeah. Their boss is looking for whether it's KPIs or data or you know performing it every say single day and <laughs> and we're getting into this data-driven world i mean the oil and gas is kind of coming up the rear with it but i mean mm-hmm. data analytics is it's going to drive this business and it already is to yeah. a certain extent i mean uh, yeah no it is and and there's what's interesting too is there's a lot of outside industries such as or e- even huge companies such as ibm amazon like all these companies realize our demand and, and their, the need for like cloud computing and, you know, reservoir analytics and, and all of that. And so it is changing and the culture is changing. And, and that's certainly a rabbit hole we could get down. But but it's interesting, the shift that we are experiencing. Yeah. When you're, you know, say an operator that's spending a lot of money on acquiring acreage, the ability to process data at a quicker pace and make changes quicker mm-hmm. really helps you know, it really helps maximize that dollar. Yep. Right. For them. It's not a, a long drawn out trial and wow, we shouldn't have been pumping this. We should have been doing this type of uh, a frack. Right. And the ability to use that data analytics like spot fire and stuff like that and having those reservoir guys constantly utilizing their, their software, it really helps make decisions a lot quicker, which yep. in return creates more value. Yeah. We're seeing a lot of that. And me being on the drilling side of things, having different platforms to be able to make real-time decisions with regards to directional, mud still acts a little bit, you know, old school in the sense that, you know, you run your physical mud checks. There's not real-time mud data coming in all the time. But I mean, things like Coriolis meters, which have been around for a long time, even offshore, but, you know, having real-time density and and then like PWD, LWD, you know, especially to, to really maximize each footage drilled, to eventually hopefully maximize our production is, is it's pretty fascinating to see. But before we keep going down that rabbit hole, I wanted to <laughs> kind of keep focusing on, on your, because you, like you said, you were building motors, 
And then you ended up getting into sales. Was that here in Houston or where did you first break out on the sales side? No, I, I broke out in the, obviously in the field running all over the place. And, and then I talked them into, they were trying to move me to Houston. I talked them into getting me an office in Quero. Yeah. And actually it was, it was a easy pitch because of the fact that we had so much going on with our motor leases and different areas in Corpus and also San Antonio and so forth with operators up there working EOG moving there, Lewis and everybody. So Mm -hmm. I was kind of centrally located in between Houston, Corpus and San Antonio. So it was nice. And on top of that, they, because I was right there, they ended up uh, making me run a a corporate deer lease for them. Uh That sucks, (laughs) eh? I mean, it was not bad as a young man. (laughs) Right. Yeah. One of my buddies, and I'm not going to say his name, but he, a customer of mine, and the thing he likes about, you know, being in the oil field is he says every day, paychecks and perks, paychecks and perks. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. You know, we work hard, but we also know how to play hard every once in a while too. But man, what was, oh, go ahead. You run No, I was, that's what makes it such a great industry. You know, a lot of hardworking folks that also like to have a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. No, if, if you like to work hard and play hard, the oil field's probably about your best bet. Now I've never done anything else. I mean, at 18 started working drilling rigs. So I don't know what the rest of the world's like, but so far, you know, it's been quite a wild ride. So before getting onto the drilling engineering side, I mean, how was sales for you? And, and did you enjoy it? Did you have a natural, like, did you grow up kind of in, in, in like a salesman environment or like, you know, like, cause a lot of people I do think that do well in sales either like kind of had that hustle as a kid, like selling lemonade or, you know, had parents that were entrepreneurs or, I mean, cause you're a very good you're good with people and you obviously have done well. I mean, where does that salesman inside of you come from? I, I think I just never shut up. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. You know, I don't know. I, I enjoy being around people. It you know, feeds me just to, to you know, yeah. be around everybody and learn about people and understanding. I never meet a stranger. And I think I've always been that way. You know, I had a lawn business as a kid. You know, my dad said, you want to okay. make some money. Here's a lawnmower. Go do it. So I'd go around the neighborhood and ask everybody. See, a lot of us had, right? So, yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know, I, I truly enjoy conversations with people. And I think it just comes naturally to me to, to speak to people. So, and, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about, being able to, under, you know, being able to lose, you know, and, and understand that it's, uh, it's not the end of you Yeah. too often, you know, when in sales, it's, it's very difficult. I've had friends that have done sales, tried sales and not just oil field sales, sales in general. Mm-hmm. And the rejection was so difficult for them that they ended up getting into another profession. Yeah, no, I think that's common. And I think especially, you know, as the younger generation comes up, that's one thing I'm going to hopefully get my kids into is, is whether it's, I was going to say shovel snow, but we don't do that here. Cut people's lawns for money or, you know, pull weeds for money, wash cars for money. I mean, my parents had me going around the neighborhood shoveling driveways in in the wintertime, you know, snowing. And well, you know, obviously in Canada with lots of snow and then, you know, just offering up different things, washing people's cars. And and it just kind of helped me, you know, to be able to go to someone's door when you're like seven and eight years old and say, hey, Mr. So-and-so, can I cut your lawn? And you know, as a kid, a lot of times they would, but, and then, you know, growing up, I grew up in a, in a family business, carpentry and, you know, custom cabinets and, you know, furniture and stuff like that. And so when we had scrap wood, my old man would make me make cutting boards out of them. And then anytime someone would come in the store, I'd have to hustle cutting boards. Right on. And then when I was in college, I was, I was buying, you know, fake merchandise from China and selling it to all the college kids to make some extra money. I could totally see you doing that. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, I, I say that because, you know, it's it's natural. And then here I am in sales now. So I used to get so upset with my old man because he wouldn't buy me a vehicle. 
And he used to tell me, if you want one, go get it yourself. And somewhat sarcastically, he'd tell me. But, I mean, sure. I understood that he wasn't going to buy me a vehicle. So I started working part-time in high school. I'd do that junior and senior year. I did that, go to school half the day and then go work half the day. And then I'd run to practice and do practice and then get home and, and, and do studies and, and go back and do it all over again for two years so I could afford a car payment, insurance, and gas. Nice. Yeah. Because I didn't want to be the only guy in high school in a, in a right. small 3A town without a dang car. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't have made the cool kid list. No. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously you did the sales thing and then you get probably one of the the coolest in my opinion one of the coolest jobs in the in the oil field is is becoming a drilling engineer so you mentioned a gentleman's name i don't know if you want to mention it but it sounds like you had a, someone to champion into that role man tell us how do you how did you end up getting in there it's a crazy story but i used to call on the company obviously sm energy mm-hmm. and they were one of my accounts with another nov corporate salesman up here that we we'd piggyback the account because I was running the area down there and, and understood what was going on. And throughout the course of several, I guess, a couple of few, you know, probably a few years of calling on uh, SM Energy and, and the drilling manager at the time, David Green, we were optimizing their drilling performance, uh, tweaking BHAs and bits and so forth. And NOV at that time had all that, acquiring Reed Heikelog and mm. stable, or uh, not stable drills, excuse me, Reed Heikelog and Gamaloy and, and Andrew Gage and Okay. So they had a lot of, we had a lot of tools that we could offer and we were working on getting them to drill faster, basically. Yeah. And I was really passionate, obviously, about what I do. And, and at that time I was trying to push them to do a lot of different things. And David, you know, made the decision to come after me to try to get me to come to work there. And I, you know, I think he came, you know, you can ask him, but I think it was like four times. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I told him, you're crazy. I don't even have an engineering degree. I got a business degree. And he said, I can teach you all that. Right. You're going to have to sit the rig and understand it. But at the same time, you'll be doing the planning. You'll go to well control school and I'll put you in, you know, casing school and, and wow. all these different things. And, but you're going to have to be committed because it's going to be a lot. It's yeah. going to be drinking from a fire hose. And so I turned him down, I think the first three times and the fourth time he got me, Yeah. he said, man, don't you want to just pick your own bits and not have to sell somebody a bit? I mean, yeah. don't you want to just be able to drill that well from start to finish and it's it's yours and i think you know putting some thought into that i understood that it was going to be quite a commitment to jump out of sales and and, and attempt to do that but it was probably never ever going to come again Mm -hmm. so i i told my wife if you can hang in there with me on this one you're going to have to move to houston she lived two two blocks away from her parents in Quero. so so yeah she was committed to doing it she knew it was a good move for me and we made the decision it was it was an awesome eight-year run with SM Energy, and and I appreciated David seeing something in me. Yeah. Wow. What a neat experience. What was your favorite part about being a drilling engineer? Optimizing performance, man. Yeah. Setting records. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, you know, building the team, all of us pulling in the same direction, getting everybody on board to reach the next milestone, right? Whether it be lateral length or ROP or AFE cost, you know? Yeah. Obviously, that's a big one. Yeah. Uh, yeah getting no your cost down year after year. You, they want to see it continually declining and your performance increasing. And we obviously, SM was really big into analytics. And so that was a big part. There was a lot of people constant. We had our own little group of people that were running those. Huh. Even back hmm. then, which I guess wasn't. No, that no. I think, I think about mid, midway through my eight years there, they started to build a team. 
an analytical team hmm. that was looking at all different things in all different groups, not just drilling. Okay. So was completion that- performance, drilling performance, reservoir. Ah, okay. So it sounds like that was driven from upper management to try and, I mean, optimize what was already there and just like, how can we push the envelope? Kind sure. Of thing? Yeah. We were extending our laterals too. When I got there, I think we were drilling 5,000 foot laterals. When I left, we were drilling 15. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, the Eagle for what a better place to get, like, cause at that point there's no, not much exploration. It's all development and like every minute counts. And I had a customer up in Oklahoma that we were like that. I mean, starting off with you know, 23, 24 day wells, knocking them out, cutting that time in half. And literally they were looking at their, you know, their time graph and seeing where they could shave off minutes. It got to, you know, everything was so granular and like clockwork and and it got really exciting. And so I could see that, especially as a drilling engineer, just like push a button, make a tweak, you know, just the fine tuning of really making a masterpiece, really. It's almost like a piece of art. Yeah, it is. And we we even went a step further. I mean, we hired a guy, the great guy, came on board, a Lean Six Sigma expert. And he had done that all over his entire career with different places like Rolls-Royce, Kraft, and every, you know, wow. big companies, right? That was his specialty. And it still is today. He's just no longer with SM. And he would look at processes. I'd send him down on a nipple up. And I wanted him to document everything. Wow. And, you know, and then we'd send them down again and again and again, and we'd hone in on where are we losing it? Where, where's the fat at? That was a step in the right direction for shaving time. Mm-hmm. And it didn't, it wasn't just that. It was casing running or whatever the case may be, wherever he could make an impact and see, where, you know, moving the rig, you know, where we not prepared to move that rig the next day or, where, you know, where we'd taken eight hours or whatever, or where we ready to go, where the truck's there on time. And, and David was uh, influential in, in helping us shave our time. Hmm. From well to well. Wow, that's crazy. And I mean, so what are your thoughts now on the Eagle Ford? I mean, given the market conditions, obviously things are suppressed and not really good on a multiple different levels. But do you think the Eagle Ford has a decent future still? Oh, I do. Yeah. I definitely do. You know, especially if you're in the certain parts of the Eagle Ford. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have wet gas or oil. Yeah. Dry gas is tough. I mean, you're going to have to see gas come back, I think, and stabilize somewhere in the $3 range for a lot of people to feel comfortable to drill a yeah. gas play unless they just have better deals set up on pipelines and stuff and so forth. But I don't think the Eagleford's going away. It may not ever be what it was, right? but I think there's a lot of value in the Eagleford. Okay. So there's still a lot of land to be drilled up? Yeah. And, and you know, look, I mean, everybody knows about the chalk. I mean, I drilled a couple of chalk wells before I left SM Energy and I wouldn't even talk about them, but they put, they came out publicly on one of their calls and they're good wells. Hmm. And I think that, you know, the chalk is, is going to be a good formation as well as the lower Eagleford. Okay. Well, that's for a lot of operators. Interesting. That's something to look out for, for sure. So after your stint as a drilling engineer, back on the service side. Yeah. So, you know, not sure if you want to get into the details there, but how's life back on the service side? Does it bring back some dark memories or what? No, no, it's good. Look, I mean, I just, you know, SM is, you know, they were relocating a lot of people from Houston and, and kind of consolidating their operation mm-hmm. here recently, I guess in January. And I was offered a position in to make a move to Midland, and I opted not to take that position and remain in Hughes or Katy. Yeah. Family is happy and so forth. And so it was, it's like putting on a pair of old boots, man. Yeah. Just no getting kidding. right back in the sales side. Unfortunately, when I did, <laughs> yeah. COVID happened and old plunge. So it's dang poor timing, I guess. Yeah. Well, poor, or I mean, it could be the best timing yeah. depending on how this thing 
you know, plays out. But tell us about where you're at now and, and kind of what, you know, your offerings are and, and something unique and, and just your experience, like, you know, so again, kind of getting back at it. Yeah, sure. So I, I came on board with a company called TWMA. The company's TWMA stands for Total Waste Management Alliance. They're a waste management specialist. That's a UK-based company, private equity. Hmm. And they acquired the US-based company called Dynamic right? And a couple of years ago. And I actually used Dynamic at SM Energy mm. and knew you know, how they performed. And they had worked six years, I guess, for us throughout Midland and South Texas and did a really great job. Okay. And so it, it was a good opportunity. I knew a bunch of people over there and they reached out to me when they, when they heard I wasn't leaving. So we talked and back and forth for about a month and a half, two months and worked it out. And I decided to come on board and help grow that business. You know, there's a lot of upside and on the waste management side specifically and with TWMA's technology and the TCC Rotomill, mm-hmm. which you'll talk more about hopefully on yeah. your other podcast. Yeah. For the listeners out there, we're going to get Dynamic and TWMA out on uh, the AES Flowline podcast to get a little more technical and to talk about some technology. So if solids control is an interest of you, you know, I'd encourage you to follow myself on LinkedIn and, and wait for that to come out because I think that'll be really interesting, especially if anyone is interested on the mud and solids control side. But yeah. So, you know, so you, you come on board, obviously things are slowly starting to crumble around us, which totally out of our control. But right now, I mean, so what have you been doing, I guess, to, to kind of fill the gaps? I mean, you obviously, like you said, you can't go on breakfast runs. You can't really go now. Maybe you can a little bit, but not nearly as much as what we're doing. So, I mean, as someone, a seasoned vet like yourself, like what would you recommend for young folks out there eager to please, but just don't really quite have the opportunities right now? I would utilize social media as much as you can. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I've ever used it as much. I've been networking very hard to establish a, a customer base again. Yeah. Haven't been out of it for eight years. You know, I basically talked to friends of mine in the business that were, you know, doing the same thing we were doing, but now I'm trying to reach out to and establish contact with several people in the Midland Basin and so forth and letting them know what we do. Yeah. And who I am even. Right. You know? So yeah. It's a difficult task jumping back in after eight years of being out of sales. You know, you just don't jump back in with great success. You have to build up relationships and let them understand that you're going to take care of them. Yeah, no, absolutely. So being that you had that experience as a drilling engineer, now you're essentially selling to or providing solutions to, you know, drilling teams, managers, VP of ops, having that experience, what did that experience teach you? And does it now kind of change your approach when dealing with operators? I mean, can you touch on that? Yeah, no, it was no different when I, when I went to the operator side and having spent six years in in sales, I understood what the salesmen were going through when they were on the other side of the desk, specifically in tough situations when you're talking about tickets and screw ups on the rig and whatever, you know, late, late trucks and whatever. So I I was always, I was always understanding to some, some of the things that would happen because I was, I was sitting on that other side. So it's no different now that I'm back on this side. I understand what they're doing and Mm -hmm. and I understand they have a responsibility to the, the shareholder in some cases and or their company. Yeah. And they're just doing the best they can to ensure that they do their job. And it's a balance. Some do it better than others, but yeah, no, it does help me a lot to understand having been in both positions, how difficult some things can be sometimes when you're working through some of those problems and or taking on, you know, other challenges. Right. Like do people like obviously like the drilling engineers that you're reaching out to and stuff and the ones that you've had conversations with, do they kind of speak to you more as a drilling engineer or do they speak to you more as like a salesman? Because I've had 
buddies. Like I had a, a good friend of mine who was a completions engineer at Conoco to which then on the first downturn went onto the service side and he would try to talk to drilling engineers as drilling engineers. And they would, he said, man, they, they would talk to me like I'm just a useless, you know, salesman who doesn't know anything. And, you know, often I had more experience than they did and they talked down to me like any other salesman. Like, do you experience that? I haven't yet. Obviously I haven't got to be out in front of a lot of people yeah. with, with all the offices shut down and so forth and meet new people that don't know me, but the people that know me or have worked with me or been around me understand that, that I was good at what I did right. over there. And yeah. I think I proved that in the eight years of being there. So yeah. I don't really have a problem. I mean, I'm sure I'll run into that obviously with somebody that doesn't know me yeah but we can have a conversation about it you know yeah no i i can imagine again i say this because i think it's quite common nowadays but a lady friend of mine who was an engineer at bp went and sold directional tools and it would drive her nuts looking at the way they had certain setups and she knew she had to stay in her lane and she was just like, like oh you know if i could just tell him to do this and switch his well plan to that and and implement this BHA, she's like, oh, I could drill this well so much better, but they don't want to listen to it. And so I can imagine. And that's that's a drilling engineer right there. Yeah. There's always a better way. They, each engineer has a better way to do it, <laughs> yeah. you know? And yeah, I can I understand that. I understand where she's coming from. No kidding. We'll have another podcast and I'll, I'll fill you in once I get in front of a lot of people. Yeah, we'll do either a six-month or an annual review of all this. And there you, you may have a completely different stance yeah. on being a salesman nowadays. But no, I, I would imagine you'd add a lot of value to any customer that you're trying to reach out to. So hopefully... Hopefully when you know everything picks back up, you'll have that chance to to help customers drill wells. I mean, that's what it's all about, right? And you know, I don't know what the rate count's gonna be like, but I think every well now counts and every foot counts. You know, it's I don't it's know what gonna it's be gonna be like either. No it's, kidding. Uh, it's a guess, just like the stock market. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So outside of oil and gas, obviously you love fishing. We had breakfast the other week and you were talking. Are you are you gonna do a podcast or what? I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I reached out to a buddy of mine. Uh, I think he'd be a good co-host, but yeah, we, we've been throwing it around. We got some things in place. I think we'd have a good group of sponsors to get started. Man, that's huge. Uh, we'd have to learn from the expert though. We'd have to. Oh, shoot. I, I'm the least amount of expert you can ever see, but I'll point in the right direction. I hope we do. I mean, it'd be yeah, fun. You should. I love talking fishing and so does he. So there you go. Well, the reason I wanted to bring it up is because now it's on air and you've told everyone in the world that you're going to. I know. So you, thanks. I'm going to hold you accountable. Every yeah. time I see you, I'm going to ask you how it's going. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in trouble with every mom and dad that, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that have a kid in sports. <laughs> And now everybody's going to take my idea. No. Yeah, yeah. You do have a brilliant idea, and I'm not going to go there because I think it's something that I'd like to see you do. But event, you know, you've got a lot of great ideas, and so I'm excited to see where all that goes. But you know, I know we're. I want to respect your time. We're coming up on an hour already. It's what you get when you get two salesmen sitting behind a mic. But so switching gears, a couple okay. things on the personal side, which I always like to kind of get to know a little bit more. So, would you consider yourself adventurous at all, Robert? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I mean. When, Depends on what the adventure is. I'm right. not going to jump off a uh, building. I'm uh, not about to invite you to do anything crazy, but <laughs> the reason I ask is, is when's the last time you've done something or tried something for the first time? Do you have anything that comes to mind? Oh, gosh. If you don't, that's okay. But if something comes back to you, let me know. I always, yeah, well, I always I, get some interesting answers. Right there. Yeah. <laughs> I've had p- folks. And I knew you were going to ask this. I, mean, I heard, I've listened to a couple <laughs> of your podcasts. It's embarrassing that I... That's fine. No worries, man. Think about it. And if nothing comes to mind, then maybe you need to try something for the first time again here. Bring the youth out of you. Right on. Yeah, there you go. And then one other question here. 
Here, let's go with this one. So do you have any daily habits or routines that contribute to your success? I mean, are you a morning kind of guy, night kind of guy? I mean, what does that look like? Do you have anything that you do every single day that kind of keeps you on course? I get up really early every day, click on Squawk Box and okay, uh, yeah. and watch from about five to seven. Yeah. Checking the markets out. I, there you go. I try to make sure I get in a bike ride every afternoon if I'm not gone in Midland or something. Sure. And try to exercise. I know it, everybody likes to say they do and but it, i know it, it helps me feel better to release endorphins and, and it's obviously good for stress especially right now big time big time are you like a, a mountain biker or a street no biker or i like? uh, i'm just getting into it honestly I, I was doing a lot of different stuff just uh with my son ab workouts on videos i i, I was blown away by how much stuff is online that you can utilize oh, to exercise in your own home during covid <laughs> yeah no. and my son's eight and he's got washboard abs and yeah. uh he's 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 a little <laughs> You know, he's amazing that he's in that kind of shape. I'm jealous actually looking at him. Yeah. But he's into this ab workout guy. This He's okay. all tatted up and uh, yeah. he gets down and does these ab workouts. <laughs> Not my kid, but the guy on the TV yeah. that he watches. <laughs> so I've been doing that with him and suffering through that because he obviously does it with a lot more ease than I do. Hey, that's awesome, man. I hope that my kid is into doing stuff like that because I'm, I'm big into health and fitness and sports and anything that makes your body move. I'm totally down with it. So good for you of suffering through it with your son, man. I think that says a lot. I bought a road bike though, to answer your question. Oh, okay. Uh, Did you buy the spandex it. too? No, okay. I have not. Oh. I still got the gym shorts okay. and I've ride with buddies that have the spandex and they're like, you need to, you need to come to the dark side. And oh, I still haven't if done I'm it. I'm driving and I see you with some spandex on, I'm taking a picture. I, I did. Get, I did get a helmet though. My wife asked me to get a helmet. The aerodynamic helmets? No, 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 it's not aerodynamic. She oh, just, okay. uh, she wants me to survive if I get hit by a car or uh, something so that's important but i'm sure you'll be high speed low drag here in no time with all the gear i hope so yeah <laughs> right on a few other things i'd like to mention before we close out i'd like to take a moment to tell everyone about our upcoming oggn events Hey everybody, Alex here with the events on deck. So due to current circumstances, of course, we are not able to have any in-person events. So I have nothing of that nature to update you guys on, but we have been hosting some virtual events. So OGGN is wanting to offer free webinars, live happy hours, etc. during this time. Since these events are not scheduled out as far in advance as in-person events, we would like to keep you guys updated via Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. So be sure to keep checking up on that and we'll keep you guys posted on anything we're offering. It has been free. We want to offer you guys value during this time that we're all at home. So please continue checking in and joining us for these virtual events. We are looking forward to seeing you guys whenever we're able to have in-person events and hope you're staying safe and sound. Awesome. Thanks. And anyone out there in the Houston area interested in playing oil field hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. We should be opening up the rink here anytime soon. So when this airs, I think we'll be ready to rock and roll. Robert, you had something to mention, man? Yeah, no, I wanted to mention a great event coming up. Just give them a plug. The uh, Oldfield Helping Hens uh, yes, Fishing Tournament is coming up, I think, the third week in June. We plan to be down there in Port O'Connor. Awesome. I know that talking with a buddy of mine uh, the other day, he's on the board, two buddies actually, and they're planning to have it and go through with it. It may be a little different setup. Okay. Based on COVID and everything like that and big groups gathering. But last I heard, they do plan to have it. They've been putting it out there on LinkedIn. So I encourage everybody who can get down there with everything going on to try. 
Yeah, no, most definitely. I appreciate the plug. We'll, I'll make sure to put it on LinkedIn. Are you part of it or you just attend it? No, I, I attend it every year. David Green's a part of it and Brent Evans over there at Marathon's a part of it. And, yeah. uh, and those, those guys are on the board, I think. Excellent. Well, I mean, for me, I'll definitely plug it and put it in the show notes here for everybody to be able to kind of get some more information on it. So that's awesome. One other thing I'd like to mention, if you want to get into shape for summer, visit KTX Fit and Katie and get a free trial by telling one of the coaches that I sent you. Robert, thanks again for joining me today, man. I really appreciate the conversation. What's the best way for people to reach out to you or to get to know more about the company? They can get a hold of me on LinkedIn or they can call me. I don't care. I'll put my number out there. It's 361-876-1875 or they can email me at uh, robert.kasky at D-Y-N-O-I-L c-s or scvs.com perfect well i'll make it easy for everyone out there we'll put all those in the show notes that way they can just scroll down and click it on their phones but yeah anything other than that anything else you want to mention before we log off but oh no i enjoyed it first time ever doing it and uh, had a blast we'll do it again awesome you're a rock star man well for everyone out there always remember when the density's up and the gas is down open the choke let's go to town Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.